0: Hi, everyone. Good evening. Hello. Oh, music. Sorry, one more thing. Hey, Savvy. Savannah. 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 Could you shut the music off? Thanks. Thank you for that help. Whoever did that, Tracy. (laughs) I'll wait for this music to go off. Oh, okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Julia Meltzer. I'm the founder and director of Clock Shop. Thank you for coming this evening. How many of you are here for the first time? Great. Did you find out about this event via email, via social media? Email? Email? Cool. Social media? Instagram? Five Every Day? Oh, okay, various. Cool. Um, So, welcome to uh, Clock Shop. We share this space with Elysian, which is a restaurant run by my partner, and it's open Wednesday through Sunday. We have been here since 2002, and one of the programs that we have done semi-regularly for the past decade is called Cheap Talk, um, where we bring people together in conversation with one another, and this evening, or this series, Counter Inaugural, is sort of a variation on that theme. We also... Um, commission and produce projects by artists and writers and we have a project with California State Parks called the Bowtie Project which is on a piece of land that California State Parks owns um, along the LA River just across from us and a little bit south and how many people have been to the Bowtie Project? Yay, so many! Well that's great! Um, And one thing that I want to call to your attention is that on February 11th, we're having the Bowtie Field Day, which we're doing with California State Parks and the National Park Service, and our friend Luis just walked in. Hi, Luis, from California State Parks. Um, Mackenzie, can you do me a favor and just hold up one of those cards? Yeah, so if you guys turn around, there's a card that has information about the Bowtie Field Day, be sure you grab one of those. Um, So, yes. Um, We're presenting this program this evening in partnership with California State Parks and FOLAR, and I will call out those people in a minute. Um, After the election, we knew that we needed to respond with programming, so we decided to invite people who have been writing, thinking, and organizing around many of the issues that we've all been confronted with and somewhat assaulted by over the last year and a half. Um, And, you know, part of our programming um, does encourage people to take action, but we really strongly believe in um, thinking and reflecting and that that's part of the process of coming together and figuring out what you're gonna do in in response to a situation like this. So, that's, that's one thing that Clock Shop and I think Folar does so well, is that we're able to bring groups of people together in this very large, massive city that we live in um, and allow a space for people to make connections and alliances within a smaller group. So, um, I want to also remind people that next week is our final counter-inaugural event with Robin Cost Lewis and Robin Kelly. Um, Reading and Reflecting, Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. So please plan on attending that as well. I'm sure it's going to be an amazing event. Um, And you can find out about all these events on our website. So I just want to call out some people in the room who made this event happen. Um, The amazing people who work with me, uh, Clock Shop staff, Savannah Wood, who's standing behind the bar. Thank you. Mackenzie Hoffman and Sasha Archibald, who took your name at the door. Thank you all. Um, Thank you so much to my board member, Tracy Gray, board president. Thank you for coming. Um, And thank you to FOLAR staff and director Marissa Christensen, who's right here with us. Thank you. And to our really fantastic team um, who are like brothers and sisters to us at California State Parks. Stephanie Campbell, who's right there. And um, seriously, we, we probably talk to them almost every day, if not three times a day, about everything that we're doing. And Luis Rincon. Um, they, make, they make the Bowtie Project possible. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, Sean Woods can't be here tonight because he is in a closing event for the transition team that he is assigned to for California State Park. So he's doing something bureaucratic and administrative that's necessary. Um, and we'll, we'll miss him here tonight. So it's really a pleasure for me to introduce our guests tonight Linda Mapes and Mark Lopez. Linda Mapes is the lead environment reporter for the Seattle Times, where she specializes in covering nature, natural history, and Native American tribes. Her top stories recently have included her coverage at Standing Rock um, of water protectors and the Dakota Access Pipeline, and her long-term coverage of the largest dam removal ever in the world to restore the Elwha River and its salmon fisheries, critical to the native people for whom the river is named, the Lower Elwha Klallam Tribe. Linda is also the author of four books, including Witness Tree, which tells the story of the science of of climate change through the life of a single 100 year old oak, due out from Bloomsbury Publishing in April 2017. And you you are able to see some of Linda's other books here with Mary from Skylight Books. And I I didn't mean to neglect to say thank you to Skylight Books, (laughs) because we love Skylight Books. They come whenever we call, and they sell books to people. So thank you so much, Mary. Mark Lopez comes from a family with a long history of activism. He was raised in the Madres del de Los Angeles, Santa Isabel, an organization co-founded by his grandparents. This set his trajectory as a community activist. He earned his BA in environmental studies from UC Santa Cruz. He spent four years organizing with communities for a better environment in Southeast LA, where he was the youth program coordinator. Mark earned his M.A. from the Chicana Studies Department at Cal State Northridge where he completed his master's thesis titled The Fire, Decolonizing Environmental Justice. After serving as a lead organizer for East Yard Communities and co-director with EYCEJ co-founder Angela Logan, Mark is now the executive director. He organizes in the area where he was born, raised, and continues to live. Please help me welcome Mark and Linda. Thank you guys both for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's only a little bit slightly intimidating to sit between the two of you and (laughs) see who's gonna gonna interlocute this this conversation. But um, it is an auspicious day that this uh, conversation happens to fall upon. Um, We didn't plan it. Um, We couldn't have planned it better, really. I mean, to have you, Linda, here to help us understand um, what might happen moving forward with the Dakota, Dakota Access Pipeline and to maybe explain that story a little bit and then to make the connection between um, what's happening there and what is happening here um, along the LA River and in the communities that you organize in, Mark. So um, I, maybe we could start, Linda, with you giving us an update. What did you do today? Well, so,
2: hi everybody. Can you hear me okay? All the way in the back? Great. Um, First of all, it's wonderful to be here. It's great to see so many people and um, let the counter-revolution begin. (laughs) So, off with a bang today, right? Um, Julia picked me up at the airport and my eyes were like even a little bigger than usual because you all heard the news today about uh, Donald Trump, right, putting out the word, or so he thinks, um, about the Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone. Well, He's about to learn that there are actually three branches of government (laughs) and there are these things called treaties and uh, the thing called the Administrative Procedure Act. You know, this isn't just a matter of tweeting. So um, I spent my day writing about um, the president's executive order and uh, what happens now. And, you know, Mark and I have had a little bit of a chance to visit and um, I think the thing that really connects our stories is place people's connection to place the vital importance of place the fact that when places are healthy people are healthy and that what we see going on with Standing Rock is people literally fighting for their lives and what is so beautiful about what I have witnessed at Standing Rock since covering this story beginning in August going out there in October you know this is not only an Indian story this is an everybody's story I mean the people who were in those camps by the way thousands of people in rural North Dakota. We're talking about the middle of nowhere. It costs like $500 to get there. (laughs) You know, that was everybody who was there, retirees, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, everybody's there. And you know what, 10 years ago, they wouldn't have been. Things have changed, times have changed, and they're not going backwards. So with the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, this executive order basically says to the US Army Corps of Engineers, who you're working with here on your project with the LA River, you know, it wasn't a fiat, actually. What the president says was, we want you to do this um, environmental impact statement review if you're gonna do it quickly, expedite it. Or better yet, take a look at that order that was issued by the Corps in early December calling for the EIS, which the tribe had asked for, Doesn't seem like too much to ask for, for a 1,100-mile-long pipeline through four states moving 500 million, pardon me, billion barrels of oil a day. But believe it or not, there never had been an environmental impact statement of this tremendously large, important project. Hmm. Okay, so the president said, if you're going to do the review, do it fast. Better yet, take a look at that order, or maybe rescind it, and just issue the last easement that the company needs in order to finish the pipeline. It is completely built except for the last 1,000 feet, which is the crossing underneath the Missouri River. There are employees sitting in hotel rooms right now in Bismarck, North Dakota, just waiting for the green light to get to work. So what will the Corps do? Will they round file it? Will they just continue on with the work they were already doing, which has now been called for and is in fact underway, or Will they issue an easement? And if they do, construction actually can start, and it can keep going until a court takes an action. The tribe has already said that they will sue immediately because you can't just make it go away. I mean, you cannot make an order of a previous administration and just go poof. It doesn't work that way. This is a regulatory action. It was called for by the Secretary of the Army, not some um, flunky. Right, and so federal judges uh, take a very dark look at this sort of uh, flip over in administrations and one administration trying to just wipe out what the previous one did. So um, if that administrative order goes through to just go ahead and issue the easement, you can be sure the tribe will sue and right away, it will go to court. You know, if, if they build that crossing in two weeks, which is all it takes if they work around the clock, Battle still isn't over. At that point, you've got a pipeline, but the courts can turn off the oil. I mean, this fight is going to go on until there is some kind of outcome, basically, that the tribe can live with. That's what's going to happen here. This thing is only getting started. There's a huge march and rally in Seattle tonight. You're thinking, Seattle, that's a long way from North Dakota. Yes, it is. But there are a lot of tribes in North Dakota who are fighting fossil fuel projects of their own. Mm -hmm. Biggest cold fort ever in North America, gigantic oil train depot. I mean, we are the thin green line of resistance in the Pacific Northwest between the fossil fuel production areas in the Bakken and also in, um, in Wyoming, coal, oil, gas. It's all coming through us if it's going to Asia. Or, by the way, coming to California. Mm-hmm. And this is where our stories connect. Mm-hmm. Turns out the Dakota Access Pipeline It's just the beginning of the story. There's the Trans Mountain Pipeline up in BC. This was just approved by the labor government, by the way. This is bigger than Dakota Access, and it's tar sands oil, which is dirtier. Guess where they're bringing it? That would be right here, bringing it right to your communities. Um, And so I started out by saying that what unites our stories is place, people's connection to place, and the vital critical importance of keeping the places where we live healthy, reviving them if they're not. Which is what you're trying to do here.
0: Yeah, Mark, can you can you talk a little bit about how the protest in Standing Rock connect or affect the work that you do, and and what is happening in the communities that you're organizing in?
1: Yeah. So so first, uh, <clears throat> can I get a sense from folks in the room? Like, is anybody here from East LA, Southeast LA, Long Beach? I just wanna. Make sure that when I'm referencing stuff, I know who to look for for the head nods. Like, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. All right, cool. Um, so, I mean, I think who, who isn't affected by what's happening in North Dakota, right? I mean, I think the, the magnitude of, of, of power exhibited there by, by indigenous peoples, um, it affects everybody, right? I think looking at, at at that and Black Lives Matters are probably two of the biggest moments in the last decade um that have really uh changed the way we understand and when I say we, it's a larger we um and specifically even my family members on Facebook right like acknowledging stuff that they wouldn't have acknowledged a couple of years ago right and I'm sure that's true for a lot of folks here um but, but on top of that, I think starting to get, to get us to look at um, direct action also in a different way. I think a lot of folks in Los Angeles and other parts of the country and world have gone out to North Dakota and participated um, in, in the frontline struggle in, in different ways, and folks are bringing that back home, right? And so um, here in, in, in L.A., and specifically when we're looking at the port of Long Beach, that's where that oil is going to come to. Right, so it's this isn't a distant struggle that's somewhere over there, or oh, it's going to end up in Houston. Like, nah, there's huge oil refineries here in LA that are exploding all the time. Right, if you don't live by them, it maybe that's not something that, that you think affects you, but but it's here, right? Um, and so that oil is going to come on ships down the Pacific coast, it's going to dock at the port of Long Beach, it's going to not even be trucked into the community. It's actually gonna be piped up the LA River under West Long Beach, under homes in West Long Beach, under schools and parks in West Long Beach to the oil refineries in Wilmington, right? That's, that's what's gonna be happening. Um, that is a current struggle here in LA that we're fighting the Air Quality Management District because they want to approve the project. Right, they want to approve for that to happen, and obviously that's not something we want to happen. So, I think there's a lot of lessons that we're learning. We're we're definitely paying a lot of attention to what's going on out there, as well as in other communities, and and starting to to talk about and plan for escalation, especially with with Trump in office. Right, I mean, I think uh, folks are lo- all over are thinking about what types of tactics do we have to implement now. Right, I think. In 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 LA, um, you know, we can apply a lot of political pressure through direct community organizing, uh, and if that doesn't work, then then sometimes we were able to rely on our, on the courtroom, right? We're able to rely on the California Environmental Quality Act uh, to protect us. Um, but at the national level, it's it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Stuff dies at the national level, right? And now, especially with an animosity towards California, it's it's gonna be worse. Um, so we have to look at direct action. We have to look at uh, looking at, at past movements and current movements and understanding tactics and and preparing for that, right? I mean, to, to, to be straight up, like, we're, we're going to have to prepare to get arrested. We're going to have to prepare to understand what that means for the individuals that are going to be making these choices to do that, as well as preparing resources for folks, right? Whether that's bail funds, you know, court fees, lawyer fees, all that sort of stuff because that's, that's really where it feels like it's going, um, if not worse, right? And so, so I think it's, it's definitely scary times um, and it's something that, that I think we're all gonna be looking to each other uh, for support um, and, and understanding, right? I think for, for a long time, folks have looked at issues as, oh, that issue exists over there right that's not my issue, my issue is this, or maybe i don 't have issues or whatever right um, but but there's no time for that right now, right? Like every single day we 're getting notifications of of wild shit Trump is doing, you know like like all of us are under attack every day i 'm like, let me look on Facebook to see what trump 's doing today, right, and he 's been in office for like forty eight hours. Mm-hmm right so so it's gonna, it's going to continue to get worse in a lot of ways, and I think um, something that 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 we talk a lot about in, in our movement is um, is when there's crisis, there's opportunity, there's opportunity for us to be innovative, to come together to to build solutions, and there's opportunities for those who will keep us divided, those who Keep oppressing us to take advantage of that as well, right? And so it's a it's a struggle that we all have to step up and, and take.
0: Linda, can you can you tell us a little bit more about um, the connections between the First Nations people around where you live and the connections between Washington and North Dakota, and the role that the tribes play in really pushing a lot of pressure?
2: It's uh, been a beautiful thing to witness it to see the communities in Washington state be so grateful to the tribes for the leadership role that they have taken against some of these fossil fuel projects in Washington. Give you one example, the Lummi Nation which is up in Bellingham almost in Canada stepped out against this proposed coal port which was going to bring coal trains by the hundreds through communities all the way down the Columbia River Gorge all the way up to the northern part of the state um, to reach this proposed coal port, which is going to be the largest in North America, a $670 million project at a natural deepwater port, industry desperately wanted this project. They were pushing it very, very hard. So the Lummi Nation, um, which is about 4,000 people, very young, as a matter of fact. Uh, a lot of their people are very young. Their tribal leadership is very young. Um, but they're tigers. You know, they're the, um, the highliners of Puget Sound, fishermen, crabbers, Um, they go after it if it swims. And and these are incredibly um, proud, of course, people. Deep cultural roots. They were never moved from their original Aboriginal place. Uh, This is their place. And and they went after this project. They took it on. They went to the Corps of Engineers Seattle District, as a matter of fact, and fought this solely on the basis of treaty rights. Um, And interestingly, uh, the Seattle District Corps of Engineers denied the permit for the project on the basis of treaty rights. They actually unplugged the ongoing EIS, said, actually, we don't need to spend the next 18 months doing this thing because this would interfere with your tribal fishery, which as the trustee for the tribal treaty rights reserved to them under the peace treaties of 1855, they had to do, and they did it. That was incredibly inspiring to tribes, um, actually across the country, and it lit a little bit of a fuse underneath the Standing Rock issue because at that point, Uh, This victory was in May, and in April, what had started by then was just a very tiny little beginning on one woman's tribal land at Standing Rock. And Mm -hmm. she set aside a little bit of a campsite and sent up some prayers, and then Cherry Point happened at the Lummi Nation. And people started to think, huh, you know, we can actually win. We can beat this stuff. And the The non-tribal communities in Washington were so grateful for the leadership of the Lummi Nation on Cherry Point because, you know, what are they going to do? Write your congressman. um, Go to another meeting. They felt so helpless in the face of the giant fossil fuel industry and its money. You know, but the tribes have a unique standing, and they were willing to step up, step forward, and it wasn't only them. The Yakima Nation went after a coal port down on the Columbia River. The Quinault Nation went after a gigantic proposed oil terminal, oil train terminal um, out at Grays Harbor. Tribe after tribe, project after project, whether it was coal trains, oil trains, coal ports, didn't matter. They all went after it. This has all been happening in just the last five years. I mean, it's been an incredible push. The reason being all these um, fossil fuel producers wanting access to those Asian markets. And so there's been an enormous amount of pressure on the tribes, and they have been responding. And not only that, when this started to go down in Standing Rock, they remembered that when the fish wars happened in Washington State, and this was as ugly as Selma. I mean, this was white game wardens beating, shooting Indian people on the banks of the rivers in Washington State, telling them they didn't have the right to fish off the reservation. Indian people came from all over the country to stand with them, to fish with them, to get arrested. And you know what? When I talked to some of the tribal members at Standing Rock, their elders had been in Washington State at the ends. When I talked to Muckleshoot tribal members, Nisqually tribal members marching in the streets of Seattle for the people at Standing Rock, they said, you know what? When I drove a bunch of jackets and tents over to Standing Rock as a donation, I met with people there who'd stood with my father on the banks of the Nisqually River. So this is a circle. It's a circle of culture and it's a circle of history and it's connected and it is um, it's not stopping it's getting bigger it's getting bigger and bigger and you know what happens now I can tell you what's happening right now in Seattle there's a gigantic demonstration and um, you think to yourself if that's what it looks like when you're trying to build a oil pipeline in rural North Dakota what's it gonna look like when they try to build one in Metro Vancouver Tar sands oil, all the way from the Alberta oil fields to the west coast, to bring it here.
0: Yeah. So when we were talking beforehand, actually, Mark and Linda were sort of cooking up all these connections mm. that Linda could give to Mark, yeah. so they could East Yard could be connected to people in Vancouver. And yeah. I just want to circle back for a moment, Mark, to your own personal history, and um, you know your grandparents founding Madres de East Los Angeles, and I just wonder what are the connections that you make personally? What are the, the things that you're struggling for now that maybe were things that your grandparents were struggling for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I so I, I grew up in the movement, right? My, my earliest memories are, are being in, in protests in East LA, and and um, there's a lot of lessons there, right? I, I was talking to somebody today, and I'm like, I, I, I remember... Uh, being a little kid and, and, and seeing some of what went down, went down. I still have those memories, right? Whether it was some of the big green organizations pulling out of our communities because of xenophobia, um, or, you know, we were talking about labor, the labor party in, in, in Canada and, and, you know, labor coming out in support of, of the pipelines today and in the past. Um, I think about the oil pipeline here in L.A. That, that the Mothers of East LA fought uh, and beat. It was gonna be built under Hollenbeck Middle School in Boyle Heights, and we successfully fought it off. Um, but it was labor that was, that was pushing it. You know, it mm-hmm. was labor that was working with the oil industry. It was, it was Dolores Huerta who was working with the mm-hmm. oil industry to push that project. Um, and then it, it moved somewhere else. Where do y'all think it moved to? Hmm.
0: Where did it move?
2: And with to South central
0: that's a lesson
1: <laughs> right so it it's there's a lot of lessons that we learned from from those days, right even more contemporary we look at at uh at antonio viragoza and, and he's pushing a rail yard project right taking trips to china and and meeting with folks in bNsf to to help build out this infrastructure right and this infrastructure isn't just to move your iPad, right? Like there's some serious implications for for oil um, in all of this, right? And so, uh, I, I think having a really having having memory is really important in this. And I really appreciate you bringing up the fishing. wars. I was totally thinking about that while, while sitting here when you were talking about that, because there's a lot of struggles and there's a lot of connections, right? I think. Um, for a lot of folks that are are new into stuff it's it 's important to ask questions and learn from folks who have been in it for a while that's that 's how i 've learned is asking my my grandparents and other folks who were around doing some of this stuff in the eighties and nineties and and before then um, but I think what one of the most important things from those those periods was was connection and so again, my earliest memories were marching in east l a but they were also hopping in a van and driving to kettleman city right to connect with the folks in the central valley and fight with those folks it was also you know going out into the mojave right it was also going up to to sacramento and meeting with communities along the way sometimes it meant we went to tijuana you know Uh, sometimes we went to arizona Um, it meant connecting with folks right we don't just build power for the sake of holding it in a, in a very small place, but we build it to connect it to other folks and, and lift up that movement in, in, in that way. So, so I think that's what we're gonna continue to do moving forward, especially as we, we see the interconnections of our issues, right? Because if we can help folks in Vancouver fight an oil pipeline going through their communities, then it means we don't gotta fight it right here. Exactly. It means it's over, it's done. Right? We'd rather fight it up there than have to fight it down here. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Linda, one of the things that you said in one of the interviews that I listened to with you was um, um, basically feeling like you were witnessing history repeat itself. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that.
2: Right. Well, so, you know, when you think about, the geography of this story, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Great Plains. We're talking about the Great Sioux Nation. You know, when you ask a lot of people um, in our country who are Indians, they think of people in tipis. They think of people um, on horses. They think of Sitting Bull. They think of those stories. These are those people. This is that place. This is the Indian story that was the last story. This was the last group of tribal nations to face the cavalry very recently. And this, by the way, is some of the ugliest of the ugly history that our country dished out. The Black Hills, the theft of the Black Hills, the taking back of the lands. As it started in the Treaty of 1851, we were back by 1868 to take it back. We were back again, and we were back again. And when the tribe wouldn't sign another treaty under terms called sign or starve, The Congress just would pass an act and just take it. These actions have been upheld as high as the US Supreme Court as illegal thefts of land. The Black Hills today were worth um, a payment to the tribe of by now a billion dollars with interest and you know what? The tribe has never taken that compensation. They want the land and so it's a terrible and bitter history and so when this company Energy Transfer Partners of um, Texas says, oh, it's all on private land. That's the salt in the wound. Do you know why it's private land? Because they took it. A lot of that land was never ceded by the tribe, ever. It was never legally given in a peace treaty. So it's a painful and bitter history. And so to stand there um, and watch a police force gathered from eight states to say to these Indian people who have taken a collection of teepees and a few horses, just a few of them to build what they called a treaty camp right in the path of construction on some of their never ceded lands to deliberately be right in the path of where the company is coming and for the police to say on their megaphone oh it's fine you can go back to your camp down the road, you can drum and sing like you like to do, we don't care about that but right here where we want it, where we need it to make our money, beat it you're bugging us and if you won't leave we're going to come and get you And so the next thing we see is Indian people on their knees being zip tied, taken away, arrested, tear gassed. If that doesn't do it, rubber bullets. If that doesn't do it, start bringing down the armored personnel carriers. As a matter of fact, chase them by helicopter and even by ATV while they're trying to flee on horseback so they don't get arrested. And you think to yourself, what year is it? It was very disturbing as an American citizen to watch. As a journalist, I felt very glad to be there. People were very grateful. When we were there, we were the only mainstream media um, from a major paper on the scene, and people were so glad we were there. They felt a little safer because we were there. Um, It was a very scary thing to watch. I was really, really worried somebody was going to get killed. I can't believe nobody's been killed. I don't know if you saw the videos on Facebook in November when uh, the police decided to use water cannons in sub-freezing weather on these people. They used so much tear gas on some people, they lost bodily control. They sent people to the hospital with head wounds from rubber bullets. They're not lethal. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. That was um, a very dark day for our country, and I'm very worried that now that this is happening, we're going to see more violence. We're going to see a big pushback that could um, get very dangerous. And so you know when you ask about a repeat of history, how many times have we seen it? Get out of the way. We want this here. We need this for something we want to build, money we need to make. You're in the way. When will we learn? But Notice that it was different this time. Notice that thousands of people came. Notice that people came from around the world. This is the other thing that's different. You talk about connections, social media. We now have the possibility of people taking video on Facebook live and putting it out to the world. A teenager can cover this stuff, right? And they do. Thank goodness. Not only that, but the power of the internet for fundraising. The Oseti Sakawan camp was the third most successful online internet fundraising campaign ever since the GoFundMe platform has been created. Hmm. Almost a million dollars. When the veterans decided that they wanted to go to Standing Rock, they raised almost a million dollars in one week. They did it online. And so the power of people to come together, stick together, help each other, whether it's just by sending money, or actually going there yourself physically has never been greater than it is today. The challenges are um, desperately important, but the linkages that we can make um, are powerful. And it's never been like this before. We've never had these capacities, and they just keep expanding. Mm -hmm. So the question is how to use them responsibly, how to use them um, powerfully. Mm -hmm. This has been defined as a peaceful, prayerful protest. Those are three critical words, and every single one of them matters just as much as the other. Peaceful, prayerful protest. Um, Whenever the violence happens, it comes back on the people trying to make a change. There are people out there who cannot wait to say, oh, look at those hoodlums. They're just a bunch of criminals, a bunch of vandals. Can't wait to do it. To the extent that um, people held the control and the elegance the mastery of being able to just stand there and make their statement, no matter what came their way. I saw people praying and singing while they were being tear gassed. I saw um, attack dogs, right, brought against the demonstrators. That went viral, that went around the world. That changed everything. That elevated this from an environmental issue to a civil rights issue. And that's where this stays today. And the company did it. It was a massive failure of diplomacy.
0: And do you think that it's possible for that movement or that, that protest, that group of people who are there now, to maintain
2: that peaceful and prayerful position? I hope so. That's what the tribe wants. It's what they've called for. It's what they've asked for. Um, it's very, very hard to do. But that is the tradition. I mean, if you look back at the great turning points in history around the world, Mahatma Gandhi, at the salt works, of course, Martin Luther King, everything that happened in our country, that's what the most powerful demonstrations have looked like. And it's why they were so powerful, because they have moral authority. That's the high ground. Um, Mark, I want to just bring
0: things back here to LA right now. Um, and you know there's, there's division, I think, between the upper part of the LA River and the southern part of the LA River. Um, the part of the river that you organize around is not necessarily slated for revitalization dollars. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how the communities that you live and organize in are connected to the river there, and what the struggles are for you in the southern section of the river?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from the, the judge of hands here, imagine y'all having, the vast majority of people in here having gone to the Lower Alley River to recreate. Because um, it's not an area that's designed for you to do that. Um, but it's our space, so we do do that, right? Um, and it's terrible. It's, it's terrible. You know, some folks this summer in our organization tested some soil samples uh, from the sediment in the river outside Maywood Riverfront Park. This is the main entry point for folks in Southeast LA to see the river and go in. It's not designed for you to actually go in, but folks do go down in there. And the levels of lead in the soil uh, were so high that it should be treated like toxic waste, right? And this is, you know, you could see whereabouts X side, Battery recycling facility that is if you don't know, Google it. It was up up the river, right? So all of that is still in there. And this is where folks are running, this is where kids are playing. This is this this is our communities, right? Um, this is where folks are living, right? Um, and I, I think we East East Yard got involved in the river. Uh, because of the freeway, because of the 710 freeway, which used to be called the LA River Freeway, but now it's the 710 freeway, and plans to widen the freeway, 16 lanes wide. knock down hundreds of homes, jobs, pieces of schools and parks and resource centers, everything in its way would be knocked down and and paved over, right? So this is a huge now 16-year struggle in our communities. and one of the things we looked at was, was the river, right? Because the river and the freeway run, run together, right? They're, they're a spine through our communities. And um, originally, Caltrans was planning to put the Edison right away, the big electrical wires. They are planning to put the towers in the river so that they could take some of that land, right, and use it for the freeway. And Army Corps of Engineers was like, nah, that's, That's not going to happen, right? So they immediately took that out. Um, But that actually prompted us to look in the river and say, okay, if you're going to tear up the river to put electrical wires in, then you're going to do something else in there too for us, right? So when they pulled that out, we said, okay, we, you know, if the river inside isn't going to be touched, the bike path needs to be improved, the exterior banks need to be improved, right? Um, Because right now there's no lighting on the LA River on the bike path, right? something like 21 miles of bike path that's not lit at all. Um, It's not very well maintained. There's a bunch of kind of weed growth. There's tons of glass and other stuff, right? Um, So what could be used as a major active transportation corridor for our communities um, is, is largely empty at night, right? which is a big issue because if you look at industrial centers like the City of Commerce, like Vernon, like the Bow Annex, this is a place where thousands and tens of thousands of people work, many of them living in the surrounding communities down the river but won't bike it to work because when they get out, it's going to be dark. Or won't bike it to work because when they go to work, at, their shift starts at 2, 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning, it's dark, right? So you don't, you don't go on the river when it's dark. Um, so all of this is, has got us thinking about the river and got us thinking about bringing assets to our communities, right? If, if the government wants to invest 6 to 10 billion dollars in our communities, it's not just going to be to knock down our homes and pour concrete, right? That's, that's not okay with us. Um, but along with that, then we have to start having conversations of what does it mean to bring investment into our communities, right? Um, Speaker Rendon got a bill passed that has started the Lower LA River revitalization. It's a work group, and East Yard is the only group that has a seat at the table that's actually based in the Lower LA River, right? I mean, Brian's from the Lower LA River, but that's a whole other story, right? <laughs> um, and so that's an issue, right? So we're at the first meeting for the, for the lower LA River and folks are talking about they can't wait to kayak in the river and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, homie, there's still lead in the river. Like, <laughs> what? Like, <yeah. laughs> y'all are way off in the priorities of what our community's needs are, right? Um, but on top of that, if you're not talking about our communities, and don't be talking about our river. That's our river. Right? That's our river before you wanted to say it was part of your, 150, your 51 miles. That's been our river, right? And so you're going to come through and improve it, and what's going to happen to us? Right? So our members are asking, so if we're improving the air quality, right, if we're reducing contamination in our communities, if we're protecting from future encroachment from the freeway, if we're pushing for our community to become beautiful, Is it still going to be our community? Are we still going to be able to live here? Or are we going to have to go live in Paris? Are we going to have to go live in Riverside? Are we going to have to go live out where a lot of our relatives have moved out to? Right? And and so we have to bring that conversation to the forefront, right? Because who, who else is going to bring that conversation forward? And we've, we've found a lot of allies. That, that's something that actually surprised me a little bit is we, mm. we have some allies who are like, no, that is an important conversation, right? Mm. Um, because the reality is, if that isn't central to the conversation, then we're fighting. We're going to fight, right? And a lot of folks in our hood aren't committed to nonviolence. That's just real. Like I'll just be really honest, right? Is the non profit organization gonna be committed to nonviolence? Yeah. Are folks who are literally gonna be fighting to not get kicked out of their community? Are they gonna be committed to nonviolence? I don't know. <laughs> you know, Florencia's pretty strong. You know, like y'all like this mm. when when Cholos in our hood, you know, get a street name tatted on themselves, they, that, they're going to they're gonna hold on to that, right? And when families have been living in communities for multiple generations, we're going to fight for that, yeah. right? We're going to continue to fight for that. So, so, you know, we tell folks, don't move down here. Don't move down here. We don't want y'all to move down here. Just to be honest, we don't want y'all to move down there. Because if y'all move down there, that means we can't live there. Just to be straight up, y'all want to come through and support our local businesses? Psst, do that, but then go home, <laughs> right? Just, just to be real, because what, what, what we see and what we know, we talked about this a little earlier, was Trump is this huge threat, right? But where Trump and progressive Democrats in the state of California are going to find a middle ground is in the economy they're gonna find it in jobs. So they're gonna find it at the ports, they're gonna find it on these freeways, they're gonna find it in these rail yards, they're gonna find it in these refineries, they're gonna find it in these facilities that poison us. That's where they're gonna find it. They're gonna find it in our lungs, they're gonna find it in our blood. Right? That's where they're gonna find a middle ground. Right? And as improvement starts to happen, that, that middle ground starts to shift where now all our folks are out in Riverside. So, what do you think Riverside's looking like right now? Right? Riverside 40 years ago looked like farmland. Now, it's nothing but warehouses. It's warehouses and rail yards and freeways. That's what's out there. Right? And that's where our folks are, right? Folks, folks like to ask me, oh, so where does, you know, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's claiming East LA, so where's East LA at? You know, like what, what constitutes East LA, right? And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know about him, but, you know, if the street sign says East LA, then you know you're in East LA, right? Mm-hmm. That's one easy way, but that's unincorporated East LA. We also have Boyle Heights, we also got Lincoln Heights, we also got El Sereno, we also, but some people say, Psh, it goes all the way to Riverside, right? Because that's where our folks have moved. We continue to go out, right? We continue to try to create space where, where we can because there's limitations on where we can be. Um, I think we've, we've seen the fight from, from Defend Boyle Heights, right? Uh, we've seen the fight from folks in South Central who, who are emerging and starting to, to, to come together to fight gentrification, right? It's, it's a real threat. It's a, it's a real threat. Um, especially for migrant communities, right? Especially for, for those of us who are here because we were pushed off our lands, especially for those of us that had to leave our home home communities, our original communities, because of major pro, may, mega projects, state projects in our ancestral homelands. We remember that too, and we carry that with us too, right? So all of that exists here. So when we're talking about connections like, that, that shit's real, you know? Like, when, when I asked my dad one time, like, so why, why, why have we never gone back to Aguascalientes, you know? And he's like, if we had something to go back to, we would have never left. And I was like, fuck. Like, <laughs> that's some deep shit, right? And why didn't we have nothing down there? Right? And I talked to my grandma, and she's telling me about the river in our, in our hometown, Right? and talking about our, our, our ceremonial way of life and, and the importance of the river and, and all kinds of stories in, in my life cent- center around the river, right? So, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go hit a Google Maps, right? I'm going to go find that river. So I find the town and I look and I'm like, there ain't no river right here. Like, I don't know, maybe, you know, they, Google Maps is off a little bit and maybe it's somewhere else, right? So I start, like, like zooming up. And then I'm like, what is that right there? It looks like a scar across the, you know, the little town that has like less than 1000 people to this day. So I zoom back in and I'm like, "Oh shit, that's a that's a that's a dry riverbed." So I start scrolling, following the river up. Up up up. What do you think I found? I found a dam. I found a post-Mexican Revolution dam. Right? a mega-project infrastructure for the state that restricted water from running into our communities. So when we're talking about water is life, that shit ain't no metaphor. You don't got water, you can't grow food. You can't grow food, you can't feed yourself. So 1930s Mexico, right, rural indigenous communities, that means you got to buy food. But to get money, that means you got to work. So you got to go to the industrial centers, that you got to go to Juarez. Right, you got to go to El Paso, right, and that shifts my community. And then other things bring us here to LA, and all of that we remember. So when we're out here fighting, fighting for this river, fighting for our communities, fighting against these freeways, fighting against these oil refineries, looking to connect with other folks in that struggle, we remember that, right. That's that's what we bring to these movements. So. It's, it's deep. It's not just about, I want to keep a 323 phone number or, or some shit, right? Or nah, like we, we were pushed from where we were from, and we built community here. And for those of us that have built community on the east side, we built it when no one else wanted to build community over here, right? When folks were fleeing here because we were arriving, right? That's, that's what we built.
0: So before I open it up for questions, maybe this is a great moment for you to talk about the Elwa ah. dam removal and to talk about the reconstructing or the refinding of a connection to that river and to what it used to bring to that community.
2: So the Elwa River in Washington State is in the Olympic National Park. And it's a steep, short mountain river, 45 miles long. And it spirals down from Mount Olympus to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which is a beautiful slice of blue water coming in from the Pacific all the way to the Salish Sea. So the Elwha was at one time one of the greatest salmon rivers anyone's ever known. And it was, since time out of mind, the place of the lower Elwha Clallam tribe, a very small tribe. And in um, 1910, a Canadian named Thomas Aldwell um, decided he wanted to make his fortune, and so Seattle was already too built up for him, so he went out to Port Angeles, a little town out on the Strait of Juan de Fuca, a little town just a little bit away from the mouth of the Elwa River. And he went up and he explored and he looked around and he figured out that if he were to build a dam, that would create hydropower, the electricity that would attract industry that would make Port Angeles go. And so he did. He very skillfully and stealthily bought up all the land he was going to need for the reservoir that his dam would flood. And then he built Elwa Dam, just five miles from the river mouth. And he built it without any fish passage, even in the territorial legislature. Even back in that day, 1910, that was illegal. But he worked out a deal. And you can read it for yourself in the state archives. I've held the paper in my hands in which he wrote to the fish commissioner and said, you know, here's what we'll do. My dam will be the uh, impoundment for your hatchery. And that way we will forever eliminate trouble in the future as to a fish ladder. It was the first time in Washington that Wild Habitat was traded for a hatchery and we've been doing it ever since. So that dam was built, the hydropower engines started turning, making electricity, and sure enough, Port Angeles boomed. So let's fast forward to about 1992. When the US Congress passed an act to take out that dam, not only that one, but the one above it, just plain take it out. And they took it out because of the work by the tribe. It started with them and environmental groups basically figuring out that, you know what? Um, Tick-tock, relicensing time, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, it was time to get a new license for Glines Canyon Dam, upriver, Elwha never even had one. And they figured out that, you know what? Um, it won't pencil. That by the time you have to do all the stuff you've got to do to bring it up to modern environmental standards, this company that owns it, it was a privately owned dam by Crown Zellerbach paper. They're not even going to want it anymore. So why don't we do the town a big fat favor? And instead of unplugging the electricity and firing everybody who works in the paper mill, some of the best jobs in town, how about the US Congress buy this dam so we can tear it down? That's what happened. And incredibly. Um, beginning just about five years ago, the largest dam removal for fisheries recovery ever, anywhere in the world, took place in Washington State. They took it out, all of it, every brick. They also took out the one five miles upriver. And so today, the Elwha River is a wild river again. It is a mighty mountain river, free all the way to the sea. And three-quarters of that watershed is permanently protected within the Olympic National Park. Never wrecked, never will be. And what happened when they took out the dams was the fish started coming back. I mean, within days, they found their way back to their ancestral waters. They started swimming all the way up to the headwaters, all the way practically to the bottom of Mount Olympus. Not only that, but the tribe, the Lower Elwaklalam tribe started to bring back ceremonies that their people had not done in generations. Suddenly, the young people learned that the creation site that they would heard about from their elders wasn't just a story at all. In fact, you could see it again because the floodwaters had finally dropped. And then the animals started coming back. There have been more eagles seen in the lower river in the Elwha last winter than have been seen in decades. They're there because of the eulicon, the candlefish, these wonderful oily forage fish that are now back in the river in wintertime. Mm. Not only that, but all kinds of birds are coming back to the river. And they're bigger and fatter than ever. And they're bearing double clutches because they're eating salmon eggs from coho, spawning. Mm -hmm. And so it's a watershed-scale recovery, Mm -hmm. starting with the fish, but now spreading to all these other animals that are coming back to the watershed, which is now alive again and celebrated by the tribe. I started out by saying what unites our stories is place, the importance of place, and that when places are healthy and whole, people are healthy and whole. Ceremonies coming back to the tribe, their youth are understanding that the stories they've been told all those years were all true, which means probably a lot of other things they heard from their elders were true too. And so to me, it's an incredibly hopeful story. That was done by people, ordinary people, who just insisted that it happen and didn't give up. I told you that the law was passed by Congress in 1992. The first concrete didn't start to fly until five five years ago. It took some 18 appropriations bills to finally get it done. People just never gave up. And so to me, um, it's about nights like tonight. When people come out of their houses and they come together to meet one another and form a new fabric, a strong fabric that will take you places that maybe you haven't even thought of yet. And, I, and that gives me um, great hope for the time to come.
0: Thank you, Linda. And thank you, Mark. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to open it up for questions. Um, Mark, there's so much that you touched upon about revitalization and what it does to communities surrounding the river that I it's it's honestly a whole other. I mean, I'm sure people in the room have questions about that, and I'd love to hear those questions. Um, so, please, Marissa.
1: Hey, Marissa. Do, do you need a microphone or yeah? Do you want to?
0: Speak up, voice. <laughs>
1: Yes, no, so it's an existing pipeline where tankers... So the question,
0: the question is about the pipeline that would run underneath the LA River that would bring oil
1: Yeah. So, to be refined. So it's an existing infrastructure that um, when, when oil tankers come into the, the Port of Long Beach um, can hook up to the system. And you can actually go if you go down to the um, probably south of Willow, I believe. Uh, on the lower LA River bike trail. You can see some of the pipelines cross the river that way. Um, And then if you go and and walk around West Long Beach along Willow and Santa Santa Fe, going kind of up and down Santa Fe, um, you'll see some of the markings for the underground oil pipelines. So it exists. I think the one of the threats that that the tar sands um, Oil presents is also it's it's very volatile, it's extremely um, like energy intensive to refine it, and uh, it's a lot a lot more toxic. Um, so all of that presents a lot of dangers to the region, and then of course to the communities that are up against it right
0: now. William.
2: Right, so the question was, uh, what about the water protectors? What's this like for them? You know, do they have a sense of hope or do they just feel like this is a bombshell? And you know, I would say it's very galvanizing. It's, it comes at a very interesting time. I mean, the Tribal Council just on Friday had passed a resolution asking people to leave the three camps. And the reason for that is that the Missouri River historically floods in that area, in the very area where people are encamped. Sure, so it's a public safety issue. Um, and they also need to do a big cleanup before the water comes because, you know, you've had thousands of people living there, camping. And now this happens. And so are people really going to want to leave? I mean, I talked to somebody today who's headed right back. Um, not surprising. So, you know, I, I certainly haven't heard people say, oh, well, I guess we can't win this. We're going to give up now. I've heard quite the opposite. I, I talked to one Muckleshoot tribal member. who's a young man who camped at Standing Rock for months. Uh, you finally went home for a little while, and I talked to him today. You know what he's starting to do? He's doing a uh, walk across the country all the way to Standing Rock, and then he's going to go from there to Washington, D.C. So <laughs> different responses for different people, but, boy, the last thing I hear is anybody um, standing down. Yeah. Sheila? Sheila?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you can go to Long Beach and see the Thumbs Islands, right? And for those folks who live near there, um, you know that if you call the gas company to report a gas leak and they ask you where you live, they'll be like, oh, no, that's not that's not us, that's the Thumbs Islands, don't worry about that, right? Um, because those are just emissions coming off of the island. So that's, if you if you kind of look at the, the state system for where fracking is happening, you'll see tons and tons of fracking happening out on, on out in the water in these manufactured islands that have towers that were designed by folks from Disney to, to look nice. Um, so I think no, I think that's, that's extremely important. Um, you know, here, the, the Wilmington oil field is like the third largest oil field on the continent. So tons of oil production happens here in, in, in LA. Um, when it comes to bringing tar sands, that's why Tesoro wants to expand its facility, right? wants to dramatically expand its storage capacity. It bought the, the BP plant in Carson and, and wants to bring it together to be the largest oil refinery on the west coast, right? So there's lots of oil here that's already being tapped into and, and they want to grab more of the market, right? I think that's something that we all need to remember. It's, it's about markets. We don't need this oil. These are all decisions that are being made about how energy production will happen in the region, in this country, on this planet, and other decisions could be made. Right right now we're fighting for zero emission buses for metro. So we already cleaned up the buses, we have natural gas. I'm like that ain't no clean bus. That was a clean bus like twenty years ago. <laughs> Y'all got y'all to gotta move with it, right? And we're pushing that because the same system that would power a bus, zero emission, is the same system that would power a truck, zero emission, right? So if that becomes a reality in Metro, right, maybe some of the communities that y'all live in, if y'all get zero emission buses, because I don't know, I, they probably won't come to my community, just to be real, right? We'll be able to benefit because then we can say, look at these buses that are have been running X amount of time and, very few issues, so we're ready to do that in the freight system, right? Um, And we have to fight for that, right? We're fighting for a catenary system on the 710 freeway. Catenary systems been around for like 100 years, right? We're talking about the overhanging power lines that power the buses in San Francisco, right? They don't wanna do that on the 710 freeway. Caltrans is taking that off the table because they wanna be energy neutral, It's like that, you're killing an option, how's that neutral? Like y'all are taking that off the table, right? Um, so, so it's interesting, right? Because where, where do we find our allies now? Edison is our ally, right? Mm-hmm. Because they will hugely benefit from an electrified freight corridor, right? The same way that natural gas pro- producers were allies 20 years ago because they could grab a piece of the market. And it's really terrible that that's what guides a lot of decisions that happen. But that's part of what we need to understand to to push our agendas, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Another question?
2: Right. So um, the question was an observation about uh, the militarization, really, of uh, the camp by the police. I mean, it was a wild and uncomfortable, scary, disruptive, disturbing um, environment to be in. It should have been a peaceful, beautiful environment to be in. But instead, there were um, floodlights at all hours. There was a lot of um, circling aircraft at all hours. There was um, a real sense of Funny stuff happening with the internet, and you know, people not being able to get signals out. And uh, there has been a lot of drone observation, and so it's, yeah, drones shut down. It, it's been uh, a very militarized response, and it and it has taken the form as well as using these um, machines of war. You know, these these machines that are designed to create a painfully high pitched noise to try to make people just have to disperse out of pain um and so it, it's been you know these are weapons of war and, and it, you know this all started happening after 9 11 right communities got these um funds to buy all this stuff for anti-terrorism and um so now you've got all these police departments in rural north dakota with you know armored personnel carriers i can't imagine they've used it a whole lot <laughs> But they rolled it out for Standing Rock, you know, and how do they even know how to use this stuff? When do they practice? Um, but they've got it, you know, they got it. But they had it in Seattle for WTO, you know, they've got these weapons of war. And so what you talked about is real, and it happened, and um, it's going to happen some more if there's more. Um, or protest activity, they'll break it out again. And in fact, one of the things the Morton County Sheriff's Office uh, demanded today was uh, federal assistance for more police. Yeah, more mm-hmm. police.
1: I mean, it's interesting because I think, well, AliUSD had that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it was a big campaign mm-hmm. to get AliUSD to return military issued, mm-hmm. you know, tanks. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, so I'm just like, you know. Yeah
0: we're used to that here yeah to a certain extent
1: right like um if 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 things were to pop off at that level they're ready in ways where they don't got to ship it out it's it's here right i mean i think when 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 we saw the the riots in the 90s i remember seeing the the all the military vehicles parked at the target in east la that was their staging ground before they would go into south central right so it's 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 there and when you mentioned the floodlighting, i'm like oh man that reminded me of the rail yards the rail yards have 24-hour stadium lighting wow right, right? like that so the homes that are up against there it's never dark right wow so it's i'm kind of tripping out i didn't I didn't, didn't go out to, to north dakota but um now, now that y'all are mentioning I'm curious. I'm like, oh, <laughs> we're, we're already kind of living in that a little bit you know
0: so we have time for one more question
2: Well, I know I would say that I don't think there is a difference. The question was, what's the difference between an environmental issue and a civil rights issue, legally, morally, and and I would say that, in my opinion, there isn't a difference. I mean, just like women's rights are human rights. I mean, I don't know why we get into these conversations that we do um, and these splittings of of causes. I, I think especially given the fact that people need a healthy environment, and they they cannot survive without it, and that we are embedded in nature, and we depend on a living, functioning environment. Um, Environmental rights are human rights. Human rights are civil rights. I think it's all of a piece. And I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons why um, the tribal voice has such resonance, because it it overtly states what we all intuitively know, which is that these are are rights that no one um, can live without. And so when they take it to the level of treaty rights, really a matter of survival, I think it makes a kind of intuitive sense to a lot of people. And so while they have a unique legal standing, um, I think that the primacy of place and healthy place is true for all people.
1: Yeah, I think my my response would be, um, it depends on who you're talking to, what the venue is, and what they think matters, right? That's that's the only reason we need to use that type of language, I think. Because um, the reality is, if if this was a a room in my community filled with my folks, I, I would have said different shit here. You know, <laughs> like there's some stuff that I don't know if 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 uh, if it made sense to say here like it would over there, right? Um, so I think all of those things frame conversations. That's really what they do. Um whether that 's interpersonal or in a courtroom or that sort of stuff um that 's that 's really what what all of that stuff does, but I think when it comes down to it there 's there 's for, for me the the environment isn 't something that 's out there, and right? I think that 's kind of how the the mainstream environmental movement was founded and operated a lot on is is the environment is somewhere out there we need to go out there and save it and it 's like nah the environment the environment 's right here, you know like like a lot of us are taught that our bodies are are its own environment right that that contain the essential elements right and so on and so forth, and a bunch of other stuff i i don 't want to tell y'all um but but I think it's 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 that idea of connection right I think at a very fundamental level it's that idea of connection and so um a lot of issues are based on disconnection mm-hmm. right um whether it's that's that's not part of me so I can exploit it. Those people aren't me so I can exploit them. That species isn't me so I can exploit it. And so on and so forth, right? So um, so I think it's, it's all a matter of venue and I think the more we move towards understanding um, intersectionality, the more whole our conversations become.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And on that note, I'd like to encourage everyone here to come out to the discussion next week on Tuesday, which is about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and to talk about nonviolent protest. And um, thank you so much for coming tonight. Please make an effort to sign up for East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice mailing list.
1: Yeah, I mean, Facebook is the best place to mm-hmm. really see what's going on in the day-to-day. We, we blow that up pretty good. good. So that would be the, well, the best. Follow them on Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would also encourage y'all to, to get some books, mm-hmm. a couple of the books there, ones that I recommended that really uh, influenced me in wanting to understand and, and, and see stuff. One of the books, half of it is actually on the Mothers of East L.A., um, so it heavily quotes my, my grandmother. So if you want to see you know, where I get a lot of my game from is you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna find it in there. So I definitely encourage you all to grab that. And if they run out, put in orders, I'm sure. I don't, actually, I don't know if you all would take orders. But, yeah, they'll take orders. So definitely mm-hmm. encourage you all to, to, to support. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, th- thank you for sharing that. I think that's that's really important um, to 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 recognize the, the Tongva peoples, right? And not just recognize them like symbolically. They're out, you know, they they existed because they're still here. They're still in LA. They're still in in different places. Um, so to to have folks be part of of determining what happens with the land, with the river, um, we're, we're actually uh, right now working on a, a monument for Sleepy Lagoon, uh, which is out in the Bow Annex area, which is a very historical location because it um, it's where somebody was murdered decades ago and then the police rounded up every brown male they could find and charged all of them with murder and this is all kind of a precursor to the Zeus riots and right now they're showing the play so you can go learn about it if you want to go see that play, right? And so so uh we're working on developing a monument and and the location for it is actually the the that we're talking about uh, approaching is is the biggest uh, homeless shelter this side of the Mississippi, right? And so we're talking about a displaced community honoring something that happened there at a location where folks have been displaced and are now being sheltered on land where folks have been displaced, right? So it's kind of like layers of displacement. So I think it's it's extremely important to honor that, to recognize that, and to contribute to those communities, right? Like. We're all benefiting from colonization, right? At, to varying degrees for sure, but but I think we 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 owe to the to the Tonga folks, or if you're from another community, then those communities that are the original peoples there, um, to not just to not one, to, to not forget, to remember, but then two to also materially support the, the communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Great. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you everyone. Thanks.